And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that you've said, he who has ears, let him hear. And we know that in some sense we all have ears. But Lord, would you give us the right sort of ears now? Ears that are humble and eager, ones who love your word. Would you guide our understanding now by your spirit and help us to be changed by you here? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Philippians in chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 12. Again, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. We're now well into Philippians chapter 2. It's been several months now since we started Philippians. So now as we work our way through this, as we read this section, the opening words of this section are, Therefore, my beloved... That's a good way to begin. He says, you're my beloved. Paul tells us that what I'm about to say to you, Philippians, I say because I love you. Not just because I'm your boss or an apostle, it's because I care about you. And he uses the word right at the beginning, therefore which for us, we should know by now, I think we do, that whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? In other words, if we're to rightly understand what Paul is saying to the Philippians here, to his beloved, we know that the word therefore means it's connected to what he has said before. And it's not just what he said in the sentence before, it's the whole section before. In fact, his thought goes all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 27. We talked about a few weeks ago when he said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the good news, or the gospel, of Jesus is really the center of everything. And the news about it is that by God's love and mercy, Jesus has made Christians citizens of a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. 
So now we as Christians are to live according to that citizenship. So based on this idea, in chapter 1, Paul starts unrolling what that would look like to live as citizens this way. He says a Christian citizen then is called to faith and suffering. We've heard Paul say that the Christian citizen in the kingdom of God is called to unity. And then last week we saw him talk about how the Christian citizen is called to humility. When we looked at the very lovely section last week that's called the Christ hymn, showing the humility of Jesus, that the Lord Jesus, who is the king of all, emptied himself and made himself nothing for our sake. So now, therefore, based on all that, because Jesus relates to us like this, Christ now calls us to obedience. You can see him mention that at the beginning of the section. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed. But if you look closer as he talks about this, he's not just talking about obedience. He's talking about our attitude toward obedience, the reason why we obey. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read something like that, do all things without grumbling, it sounds a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, because Paul has called us, challenged us really as Christians by the grace of God to pursue this life that has these profound, lofty virtues. You know, the list is really, uh, really intense. He's calling us to a deep faith. He calls us to long-suffering. He calls us to unity. He calls us to humility. And then he says, don't grumble. And I go, that sounds a little out of place. Some translations translate this word grumbling, uh, don't complain, or do all things without murmuring. That the idea here is really the things that you don't say all the way, but you kind of say under your breath, you know, when someone messed up your grocery order in the checkout line and you kind of mumble something. In fact, the murmurings don't always even come out of our mouth. Sometimes they just come in our eyebrows. If you, your eyebrows can do that, the sort of, mm. that's what this is. Now, as Paul writes this to us, I wonder is this grumbling really that big a deal? And it is. It really is. This really is a big deal. And it deserves our attention here. We, sometimes we consider grumbling in the list of the, the acceptable sins. The sins that we tolerate Maybe we even tolerate so much that we don't even recognize it as sin when we do it. And because it's an acceptable sin, these are often the most dangerous for us. It's usually the small fires that we don't see that end up burning down the house. So we don't want to play with the fire of grumbling I mean, this has been a problem for God's people for a very long time. 
We know that after God brought out his people, Israel, out of, out of Egypt when they were enslaved, uh, he was bringing the people of Israel. They were nomads for a bit in the desert as, as they were being brought into a new homeland that he called the Promised Land. And as they got to the edge of that, something happened. And if it were not for the mercy and the harsh discipline even of the Lord, they would have turned away from the promised land because of their grumbling. In Numbers, there's several places I could go to show this, but Numbers chapter 14, verse 1, here's what happened. Then all the congregation, this is God's people, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that, wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The Lord here is on the edge of bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they've run into a little bit of trouble with the inhabitants that were there. And so it begins that they grumble. They mutter. They furrow the eyebrows at the situation, and that attitude of grumbling brought a whole bunch of very poor decisions. And they said, let's go back to Egypt. Do you hear how insane that is? Let's go back to the place where we had 400 years of slavery. Let's go back to the place where we were beaten every day for work. Uh, let's go back to the place where we were being made to make bricks out of straw from sunup to sundown. That would be better than this. Grumble, grumble. Grumbling really chips away at our obedience because it's chipping away at our trust in God. We start to think as we grumble, Lord, you can't really be good. Lord, you can't really be right here. Lord, you can't really be loving here. And before we know it, the pot that was just once barely simmering is now boiling over and spoiling everything that it touches. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about Grumbling in a way that's been helpful to me in his book, The Great Divorce. It's actually a novel, a story that in some ways is controversial. But the main character in The Great Divorce meets an old woman uh, who, during her later years, was in a nursing home. And she has since died. Uh, and, and she now, the main character, sees her muttering or grumbling about her experience. And so the main character is now talking to his teacher about this woman that he sees wandering, talking under her breath to herself. And the main character says, I'm troubled, sir, because that unhappy creature, 
doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to even be in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who's gotten into the habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and a little rest and a little change would do her all right. In response to this, the teacher talks about the distinction between grumbling and becoming a grumble, the difference between the act of grumbling and becoming the grumble itself. And then he says to the main character this, he says, it begins with a grumbling mood, and you yourself are still distinct from it, maybe even criticizing it, but in a dark hour, you might will that mood and embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there might come a day when you can do that no longer. A day when there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but there will be left just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. He says here that we become the sins then that we do. And Paul is telling us, begging with us now, and to the Philippians, he's saying, Beloved, listen, I do not want you to be that. I don't want you to become just an empty grumble. So please, set aside these things out of obedience for Jesus. Because this is not who you were made to be. This is not who you've been made to be in Christ. Obedience without grumbling or disputing as part of our living out of our citizenship as, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Or as Paul says it here, this is part of our working out of our own salvation. Now, I need to talk about that section. Uh, we need to take a good look at the phrase when he says, work out your salvation. We need to take a hard look at that because that phrase, that idea, work out your own salvation, has often been misunderstood and misused. So we want to be as clear as we can. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? This is a vitally important question for us because salvation is such a major part of life. Salvation is really the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between celebration and damnation. It's the difference between living under the glory of God and living under the wrath of God. Salvation is literally a life and death matter. So we have to ask now, according to the scripture, how is a person saved? We heard Peter talk about this a little bit earlier in our service, out of Acts chapter 4, when I read out of God's word. Uh, this was right after our confession of sin. And remember, he said about Jesus, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. And that's true. We must have faith in Jesus to be saved. We must trust in his righteousness, not in our own self-righteousness. So to say that Jesus, the salvation is found in no one but Jesus, 
for some, that almost sounds too simple, too easy. That it would just be faith in Jesus which would save us. And so some people try to fix that and say, maybe the formula looks more like faith plus works equals salvation. We know James says faith without works is dead, so it must be, you know, faith without works. And others who look closely at the Bible say, no, no, no. That's not what the scripture says. Salvation is only by faith in Christ alone. That's where we got the old phrase during the Reformation, by the way, sola fide, if you've ever heard that or remember that during our Reformation celebrations, it's only by faith. This is fully Christ, not our works. There's many texts in the Bible we could use to, to look at this. Um, one of them, the clearest one, I think, is in Ephesians chapter 2. We've heard this many times, but it's good for us. It's the kind of text that you want to just clip out of your Bible and stick on your mirror so you're reminded of it over and over and over. But this is Ephesians in chapter 2, starting in verse, well, we'll we'll start in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul says here we're really dead in sin and trespasses, but we are saved when we are made alive in Jesus. Salvation then cannot be part of your works because we're dead in doing good works. Notice in the Ephesian text, he doesn't even mention our role in all of this salvation process, not even one dot. He says, you're saved because of God's rich mercy. You are saved because of God's great love. You are saved because of God's kindness of grace. Even your faith itself is not your own doing, but that is a gift of God. So he says, don't boast. (laughs) You can't boast because you didn't bring even anything to the table. All that's left is to say thank you to the Lord because Christ has accomplished all of salvation for a believer, that Christ is really the beginning and the middle and the end of our salvation. That's the gospel good news. Now, even though our salvation is done, in the sense that it's accomplished. Paul's thought here in Ephesians is not quite done. 
He's tried to be very clear. Your salvation is never a result of you, but he's not finished with this thought. The very next verse is this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, out of your salvation, out of all that's been accomplished for you by Christ, now I want you to live it with your good works. That's what Paul has basically said in Philipp- back in Philippians. You notice that when he says, work out your salvation, he doesn't say work for or toward your salvation as if it's something that your obedience could get. He also doesn't say work off your salvation as if you're paying off a student loan debt. He gave you something, but now you've got to kind of work it off later. Instead of working for salvation or working off salvation, he says work out your salvation. Or we could say work from your salvation. You are already saved. He's he's talking, remember, here to Christians. He calls them in the beginning of his letter the saints at Philippi. These are believers. These are people who are sinners, but who are already saved by Jesus. Now he says, live like it. Beloved, I want you to work out your salvation because Christ has given this to you. This working out, he says, I don't want you to do it just because I'm watching over your shoulder. Now, sometimes you do things because people are paying attention. He says at the beginning, like, whether I'm there or not, I want you to still do this. I want you to want to do this. To seek the Lord to help produce a desire for this sort of obedience. And, And he says, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that, that phrase, fear and trembling, makes it, sounds like, makes it sound like we're nervous before God, that somehow we have salvation, but he's going to, to rip it away, maybe. But that's how, that phrase, with fear and trembling, is a common phrase and for Paul and for the scriptures. In fact, sometimes in the Psalms it says that we're to rejoice with fear and trembling. It's a complex thing, but the close sense is that if you, if you met a lion and saw its big old paws and the big fluffy mane and all of that, and you would go, ooh. It's the same sense here that we would go, ooh, and feel the, the power and the gravity of God here, and that we would know how big and important this really is so we don't dismiss then grumblings as no big deal. But he also doesn't want us to be paralyzed before God. We don't want to be like the cowardly lion before the floating head of the Wizard of Oz who can't do or say anything. And if we feel like this before God, paralyzed with fear and trembling, keep reading. The next verse will help us. He talks about, let me find it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Let me sum that up then. He's basically just said, I want you to work this out. And then he says, it's actually God who's working in you, both in your will and in your actions. There's a command then to you, and there's a truth about God. There's an action, you work, and there's a fact, God is working. Now, it's a paradox how exactly those two fit together, but they do. That's how we unroll our salvation, and we need to keep both of these things together, that you are to work and that God is working in you, because if we're missing one, it will really uh, make a mess of us. If we only focus on the fact that I need to work, then I will become maybe prideful, because it's my work, but then eventually anxious, because I need to keep up that work, and eventually exhausted, because I can't keep up that work, and we will sweat ourselves into the grave. Or on the flip side, if we neglect the fact that we are called to work and say, oh, it's only God that works in in us, then that will make me lazy, neglecting my call. And when I sin or make mistakes, I'll blame others or even blame God. Oh, it's God who didn't work hard enough in me for this. I'll dismiss things that I consider sins that aren't that big a deal, and I will sleep my way into the grave. We need both of these things together. This week I saw Eliza. Sorry, quick story here, because she's cute. Uh, I saw Eliza. Um, It's just fun to watch the young person's thought process. She had this big red ball that has all these spikes on it, but she's carrying it around. And then she sees another ball, a smaller green one, and she wants it too, of course, because kids collect things. So she's got her red ball, and she wants the green ball, and I can see the wheels turning, because they're both pretty big, and she's got these tiny hands. And so she tries to scoop them up, but the red ball keeps falling out. So she grabbed the green ball, but now the red ball's down there. So she set down the green ball and pick up the red ball. And then eventually, she put the red ball into a basket and then put the green ball into a basket, hooked her arm over it, and walked around so proud of herself. And I thought, that is genius. That's my kid. Yeah, I'm going to take credit for that, you know. Our hands are really too small to carry more than one profound truth at a time. We really need the basket of Scripture to hold these truths together for us so that we read them kind of all in one breath. Work out your own salvation, for it's God who works in you. Bundle those together and don't let them come apart. Stuff them into that basket and hold them there together because when they're held together, that changes the way that we approach obedience. It will challenge us to live holy lives, to pursue holiness, but it will also comfort us that that holiness is only by his power that he works in us. Now, 
I know we're pushing time and your stomach's probably telling you it's time to be done. Preacher, preacher, be done. But there's one more thing that really needs to be said about this section of Philippians, which is that all of this goes somewhere. This working out of our salvation is actually moving towards something. There's a reason why we do this. Paul has told us, he says, I don't want a life that is run in vain. I do not want the labor of my life at the end to look back and go, that was empty. I don't want a life, we could say then similarly, that's just trying to get to the next vacation. And I don't want to spend all my summer out in the field gathering grain just to dump air in the grain bin. I want this working out of my salvation to count for something. And it does. It does. Paul mentions two things, I'll say this very briefly, two impacts of the working out of our salvation. First, there's an impact in the world around us. He says, Christians, you live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Their generation's no different than ours. The, better, the world's neither better nor worse. It's just as it is. And we might be saddened to see the things that are happening around us. We don't grumble about them. We're not even to be surprised about it in some sense. But as Christians, we're called to look different from that. That we're to live as blameless children of God. I love the phrase when he says, you're to shine like stars in the sky. It's very similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, that makes me wonder if the world looked at the work of Christians now, what would they see? What impression would we give of Jesus? Would Jesus look like someone who is mostly against things? Would Jesus look like someone who's just upset every time his picket fence was threatened? Would Jesus just look like a grumpy nitpicker? Is that the light we want to be shining from us? Paul says instead, I want you to be the North Star that's pointing people toward, toward Jesus, that they would see in us sinners who are saved by the grace of Jesus, that we're being conformed to Jesus so that they see in us just a small, flawed glimpse of what Jesus is like so that they would come to God and give glory to God. That's the impact of the world outside of us, but there's also a second impact, an impact on us inwardly. 
Paul says, as you're working out of this salvation, it's not without trouble. He calls himself uh, being poured out, comparing himself to a sacrifice that's being poured out. But he says, by grace, when you set aside grumbling and disputing, what's left then is gladness. He says that at the end, even though I'm poured out, I'm glad, I rejoice, I have Joy, is it crazy then to say that the impact of this is that it actually will make a Christian happier? And not just we are happy, but that happiness is shared. Paul says, I'm glad. I want you to be glad with me. Philippians, we're now all increasing our gladness. Even God himself is included in this gladness. Remember, it's a God who wills and works for his good pleasure. This attitude of obedience, then, for us, makes us light and delight. That when we're working out of our salvation that's accomplished in Jesus, a salvation that he has worked in us to make us new creation, it's as if God then sees us working this out by his grace and smiles and says, ah, yes. That's very good. That is how I made you to live. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want this to be true of us. Would you work in us to shine as stars that point to you, even in our hardships, discouragements, even in our flaws and rebellions, Lord, would you lead us in repentance to work out the salvation that you have accomplished that will produce in us joy. Thank you for your great gifts to us, and we give you all praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.